0: I asked Michael why it was easier to train oil drillers to become astronauts than it was to train astronauts to become oil drillers, and he told me to shut, shut, shut the fuck up. So that that was the end of that talk. He was like, you know, Ben, just shut up, okay? You know, this is a real plan, all right? I was like, you mean it's a real plan at NASA to train oil drillers? He was like,
1: just shut your mouth. Be <laughs> the old school. Yeah, old school. We the old school. Yeah, old school. Be getting that money for a sweet honey. Got me some rules of- What's up, everyone? You're back. This is Hit Factory. Aaron's here.
2: Carly's here.
1: And uh, follow me, if you will. It's the summer of 1998 and something's coming. A celestial body, oh. a cold and violent mixture of ice and rock is hurtling towards earth, spelling the end of human civilization as we know it. Oh my. It's up to the bravest, boldest, and brightest in our society to formulate a plan, save humanity, and maybe learn a thing or two along the way. Hmm. Yeah, I'm speaking of course about two distinct movies from the summer of 1998. The first is Mimi Leader's Deep Impact and Michael Bay's Armageddon, which is, I think we can say, the more popular and the more successful of the two, though I think we can also safely say that the former is the one that came out on top for us in terms of viewing experience and just It's a better movie, Deep Impact is.
2: We'll get into it. It's made all the more salty in the wound by the fact that Deep Impact actually came out first. I had thought that part of the reason for its lack of success outside of things that we'll get into is that it came out after Armageddon and people were like, not another like space
1: rock movie. End of the world fatigue.
2: No, it came out first. Nobody could give a shit.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll talk a little bit about the reasons why we think that that's the case. I also think that, you know, two movies with nearly identical plots, but could not be more different from one another in terms of their execution. So different. And these two directors, for two people who ostensibly don't have any sort of political message in the film proper, Mm -hmm. um, their particular... Ideologies are so blatant and so apparent when you examine these films for even a millisecond.
2: I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about that. I have some thoughts. I'm quickly gonna give you the best take of the plots of these movies that you'll ever need. Okay. Just making whole in friggin outer space. <laughs> I mean that is. That's on my pro list of Armageddon. Making
1: hole. <laughs>
2: the <laughs> line making hole, just making hole, friggin' outer space.
1: Well, let's get into it then. But that, that is me-
2: the synopsis, so you're welcome. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: let's talk pros and cons. You already started with Armageddon, so why don't we just jump right in? Give me a couple of pros and cons that you have, Carly, for for Armageddon.
2: One. Distinct pro of Armageddon is a potential Eva Herzogova cameo that I am claiming to have discovered. I don't think anyone else knows about this except for Eva herself. This is
1: the, the supermodel. <laughs> She's a, su- a very su- super,
2: uh, a very famous supermodel from the. From the 90s. I adore her. I am positive she's in this film.
1: I always want to say... (laughs) But uh, could
2: find nothing about it on the internet, which shocked me because I thought everything was on the internet. You
1: did spend a good 20 minutes of this film after this Ava Herzegova or Ava Herzegova imposter's uh, appearance in a strip club. Yes. Looking up on the internet. I did. (laughs) Whether or not it was her.
2: To no avail.
1: It's not there. We don't know.
2: I'm marking that down as a pro. I think I have discovered a fledgling film career of a 90s supermodel and a woman who I quite admire.
1: (laughs) Okay, give me a con.
2: Billy Bob Thornton is the head of NASA. I think that's a pretty formidable con. Yeah,
1: that's amazing. (laughs) So I have, first pro, uh, excellent visual acuity and cinematic style. Con, feels like uh, watching a reel of commercials.
2: Okay. I literally wrote (laughs) down as a pro for this movie, makes a great highlights reel if that's what you want. I think the visual acuity I agree with, although sometimes I find the sort of cinematic styling of Armageddon to be far too oversaturated and distorted, um, which can sometimes benefit the ridiculousness and at other times just intensify it for you.
1: Michael Bay's uh, fledgling career, you know, beginning and having its origins in commercial directing is no surprise whenever mm-hmm. you watch even five minutes of a Michael Bay film. Right. And this movie is way too long. It's two and a half hours and is really just a, like you said, highlight reel of a really well composed, flawlessly edited visual moments mm-hmm. uh, but the plot of this movie seems to be getting in the way of what Michael Bay really wants to do which is just flex those cool angles and the explosions and the brilliant colors and all the the neon blues and greens that he's playing with it's it's a mess of a movie
2: the neon blues and greens are a con for me. <laughs> in this movie
1: those particular colors i would say make a a definite
2: i think it's i think it's just the use of them with reckless abandon that is a con for me like not the colors employed as lighting in and of themselves but in this movie in particular it's just by the end of it i was like if i have to see another green face close up or like from a chin chin angle I'm out of here.
1: It's too much. And I was reading uh a Roger Ebert review of this movie and he even emphasizes the the colors and and visual aesthetic of the NASA sequences and basically says it's uh it's like a sports bar but everyone's in ties and there's no booze. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's really what it feels like and looks like. It 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 has that same kind of uh, panache.
2: Can I just read you um <laughs> The, the one pull quote that I love from Roger Ebert's review about Armageddon that I think says it all. He says, the movie is an assault on the eyes, the ears, the brain, common sense, and the human desire to be entertained. That's a con. <laughs> I think that's a con.
1: We'll call that a con.
2: Um, another pro of this movie, Keith David, full stop. If he's in anything, I'll watch it.
1: He has such an authoritative voice. Second only to uh, the man occupying the White House in Deep Impact, Morgan Freeman. We're but, saving that. But yeah, I could I could listen to Keith David talk about or narrate just about anything, and the dialogue they give him in this movie is just about anything. Yeah, it's, it's about it anything. Not good. <laughs> it's not. Speaking of which, uh, that is in fact a Charlton Heston uh, narration at the beginning I of I knew Armageddon, it. I which, knew it. Which you called out.
2: Okay. You know what trained me to have an ear that is attuned to a Charlton Heston narration?
1: Uh, your NRA membership.
2: Nope. Hercules. Charlton Heston, perfectly cast.
1: As Zeus, right? As
2: No. As the narrator.
1: Uh, just the narrator. Just the narrator. That's right. In the
2: sort of opening, in the opening scenes and foundational sort of storytelling that's done to set the rest of the movie up. He talks a lot about, you know, Titans. Uh, he gives some great cues to the muses who are, of course, very famously uh, a black church choir, gospel singers. Wonderful
1: music in that movie.
2: Uh, anyways, yes. I When I heard the narration, I was like, that sounds like some Hercules shit. And I was right.
1: Piggybacking off of your Keith David pro, I have pro Liv Tyler. Yep. Con Liv Tyler and Ben Affleck.
2: Agreed. Agreed with that con. <laughs>
1: I think that she's wonderful. I she's think She's
2: lovely and earnest in this movie. So much better than the rest of it.
1: She is. But uh, every everything that they do collectively as a couple, all the romantic elements of the story are really overwrought and just like weird. None it's- of it feels organic.
2: It's totally forced. I agree with you. It's doing the thing or it's trying to do the thing that when we get into Deep Impact, that I think Deep Impact does really well, which is offer sort of very personal stakes to imbue the happenings and the consequences of the movie with some emotional heft. This does not do that at all.
1: I don't think that Michael Bay functions quite like the rest of us in terms of uh, his level of empathy or capacity to understand human emotion no i think he's just kind of devoid of any sort of empathic intuition whatsoever and mimi leader working in deep impact does nothing but hit us over the head with deeply human moments and some of them are and we'll get into this when when i talk more about that movie's pros and cons a little bit Mm two-dimensional some of them are pretty predictable sure but the last act of this movie is just one tear jo- tear-jerking moment after another.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're talking to the girl who cried for the last forty-five minutes of this film.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> we were we were in it.
2: Uh, another pro for me of Armageddon is this newly discovered on my part. I think on both of our parts. Well, I'll say the pro is Ben Affleck's disdain, which is not newly discovered. We know that that man is full of disdain for. <laughs> a lot of things but specifically his disdain in the form of dvd commentary which you exposed me to and it's it's full of gems the
1: dvd commentary for armageddon features about 35 minutes of ben affleck talking about his experience on the film some of it is pretty rudimentary stuff pretty you know uh will Patton's a great actor and so is keith david and this film really taught me a lot but there's about 15 minutes in there that are just Ben Affleck roasting the general process and conceit of the movie. And it is gold. Uh, it's a real treasure. <laughs> I cannot recommend it enough. You can find the entire thing on YouTube, even like uh, condensed and, and cut to just Ben Affleck's parts. It's a wild ride. And uh, I think over the course of the last week... I may have converted you, Carly, into a Ben Affleck apologist.
2: Okay, so this is a pro for me of the Armageddon, is that I am a Ben Affleck convert. Not because of Armageddon per se, because I've seen this movie several times prior to this last viewing. And his
1: role is terrible. And
2: his role is terrible. And in a lot of other movies, I just find him to be really difficult to watch and, uh, and not great. So because i have you know limited exposure to him in films and in his acting for the most part and i don't find him to be a particularly good actor and a lot of the movies that i've seen him in one in particular batman v superman (laughs) which really put the nail in his coffin for me like i just (laughs) so bad I left that movie swearing him off completely. I just found him utterly detestable in that in that movie. But to be fair, that movie is trash. Upon this most recent watch of Armageddon, and because of our subsequent conversations and YouTube sharing of clips afterwards, like the interview that you shared with me when he is speaking really fantastic Spanish... He's got a great accent and he's like really li- i was like okay 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 and then i heard part of the bad like dvd commentary
0: that was my you know indoctrination to like michael badem you know what i mean I, he was like you just jump off the thing it's in slow motion and the explosions behind you and i thought well i've arrived I didn't know they rated deep core drillers, you know what I mean? Like, if you went around and asked somebody, like, who's the best? Who's the best deep core driller, you know what I mean? Like, I'm the best espresso maker there is in Manhattan. How do you know? Who's keeping track of these things? This is where you just have a random helicopter in the background for no real reason, just because you're a big movie and you're expensive and you can, but you have no idea how much of a headache having a helicopter in the background causes because it's all, you know, safety this and money that and so many hours they can fly and they're on the walkies and the wind's blasting everywhere. And if I hadn't brought it up, you'd have probably forgot about that yellow helicopter in the background by now.
2: And some of the parts that you shared with me just made me realize like, okay, so he's He's not maybe the best actor, but he is extremely thoughtful and definitely understands what the fuck is going on, uh, which made me appreciate him. So in short, a very formidable pro of this movie is that is that it has made me a Ben Affleck apologist and convert. <laughs> okay. I am now standing that man.
1: What about a con?
2: The complete abandonment of like time passing in any sort of realistic way. Yeah. In this movie, like...
1: It, it condenses and expands as uh, is fundamentally necessary to the plot. There's all there's like a three-minute long 20-second countdown on a nuclear bomb at one point and...
2: It's real bad. <laughs> it's and then also so the fact that like we've got 12 days or 18 days or whatever it is... Right, it's just to, shy of
1: like three weeks. To I stop
2: think. this uh, asteroid. And the thing that we noticed in the beginning, which I had never noticed out of, you know, the five, six times I would seen this movie prior that you so astutely pointed out, which is that early scene where they're on the water oil rig thing. And they're all like, you know, joshing around and Bruce Willis is uh, firing a shotgun at Ben Affleck because he's had sex with his daughter, Liv Tyler. And we get introduced to all these characters. And then like, he's called in to you know, NASA or, like, the White House or whatever because they discover this asteroid and they're like, we need the best oil driller in the world.
1: He explicitly says, too, when he gets off the helicopter that he's been traveling for 18 hours. 18 hours. Despite the fact that wherever he's supposed to be is presumably in the Gulf of Mexico and he's flying to Houston. Yeah. Which is not an 18-hour flight. Not far. Even by helicopter.
2: And then... Uh, Post him discovering this monstrosity careening toward planet Earth uh, and the request from NASA and the powers that be that he, as the best oil rigger driller man, help them out to fucking blow this thing up. Then, like, goes back and talks to AJ, Ben Affleck's character, who in the span of 18 hours has, like, started up his own business. Right. And, like, is no longer in the water in the middle of nowhere. He
1: has a sign up that says that he's the president of his own company. So- and all
2: these other weird things, too, where the people are, like, the people who were on the oil rig with him, uh, who he left with work to do. Yeah are scattered about all over the country and, like, you know, have started their lives again or have been, like, in retirement for some time, right. the, we're the meant oil, to believe. Right. The
1: oil rig explodes as he is being picked up by Secret Service or, or you know, government officials to be taken to Houston to uh, get briefed on the situation. And within that 18-hour flight, which is... Irrevocably stupid as well, because it, there's no way it takes that long, right? Between then and them recruiting the people they need for the job, who are all the same people that were just on the oil rig,
2: same exact guys, which
1: just exploded, mind you, and needs maintenance. All of these people have found their way back to wherever it is that they uh, lived previously. Like they find Will Patton's character in uh, in Las Vegas, like shooting craps at. Caesar's Palace, and they find Owen Wilson on a ranch like in Texas somewhere. They're all over the place. I love that you bring up Batman v. Superman. Because when I think about Michael Bay, I think that the modern and subsequent torchbearer of the idiotic, hyper-masculine, Michael Bay-style film is Zack Snyder, Mm -hmm. the director of that film.
2: I agree with you. I can
1: forgive a lot when it comes to suspension of disbelief and, and the preposterousness of a premise.
2: Especially if the movie itself is somewhat entertaining. Right. Which is why I think for a long time I, I really loved this movie. Because it is a romp.
1: It's not hard to watch. Despite it, it being
2: utterly ridiculous. Yeah, and
1: I love a good B movie. Like, mm-hmm. like you know, the uh, absurdity of a premise is not a dissuading factor for me. But one totally. thing that I have very little patience for is when the movie's internal logic and narrative is constantly undercut by the director's desire to create moments that he wants to orchestrate, or she wants to orchestrate uh, in service of aesthetics. Yes. Zack Snyder does it throughout the entirety of that movie and really all of his movies. It's just one moment after another moment that cinematically looks cool, but doesn't make any sense. And Michael Bay uh, is certainly his predecessor in that regard. He thinks in sequences. Yes. And he never really thinks in terms of a cogent, overarching narrative.
2: And there is a a certain amount of that that I will partake in. John Wick, I think, is a great example. But it does not sacrifice narrative continuity for the sake of all of the really cool shit it's trying to do. Well,
1: and that movie is really the exact opposite. It is a cinematic spectacle that is conceived from the ground up with the audience's experience in mind and doesn't sacrifice those things. Everyone in that movie is is working their fucking ass off, you know, and I think that Michael Bay's movies end up tapping into all of the basis, like cortisol boosting yes. elements of our society, the cars and the guns and the girls and, you know, but it's so base that like, like it, it's lost on an entire... Portion of the population that would be willing to sacrifice some of the logic internally of the movie if it just made sense and wasn't so profoundly stupid all the time.
2: I think the reason this movie had obscured its preposterousness and in many cases um, complete stupidity from me for such a long time is because when I would watch it, I would watch it on in the background of like doing something else yep. because I was like I've seen this movie a bunch of times like I remember seeing it when I was a kid I liked it so it was like nice to have on but also I didn't have to pay too much attention to it but sitting down and watching it and examining it critically the way that we do for the first time in a very long time
1: maybe the first maybe the first time me.
2: ever <laughs> it the stupidity was inescapable what other pros do you have about this movie all right
1: here's one uh, a pro that I have is that the movie scoffs at the notion of credentialism. The con I have is that it is literally a two and a half hour refutation of the notion of exceptionalism.
2: Yes, that is fascinating. That's a fascinating read.
1: Well, and we'll get more into it when we talk about, you know, the sort of blatant politics of this. But I think that there is on display in the film a profound message of exceptionalism specifically American exceptionalism but also like the best and the brightest of a population of people and then the movie itself is a refutation of any notion of exceptionalism because of just how terrible it is mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah. it's like this this movie is it's just a veneer you know this this really rudimentary idea that we have of exceptionalism and you know a can-do kind of attitude.
2: But I think that's probably why it does feed really blatantly into this notion of, you know, individuals being special and therefore capable in a certain regard that is oftentimes beyond belief or capacity.
1: Everyone in the movie who is of uh, any import is the best in what they do. There's the smartest man in the world. There's... Best oil oil driller.
2: driller. Ben Affleck's... uh, comment in his in or note in his dvd commentary where he was like i didn't know we tracked these things yeah we don't really
1: keep we don't make (laughs) note of that there's no uh forbes list of the top 10 deep rig oil drillers in the country maybe Maybe there there
2: are you never know i'm really glad you said veneers because that very word makes its way onto my pro side okay a pro for me was ben affleck's blindingly white veneers
1: he does have blindingly white veneers. he has
2: big old White hot teeth.
1: <laughs> they are. I don't know if they're necessarily veneers, but they are definitely bleached white at least. I kind of ba- think at, they are. At least.
2: They're like too big and square.
1: They're pretty perfectly cut teeth. They, they're probably fake.
2: They made my pro list.
1: Okay. What that's about, all I'm saying. What about cons? What do you have?
2: I just said like the entire narrative conceit. Uh, that's a con for me. Yeah. Another con for me was uh, Bruce Willis slipping into a, a vaguely executed southern maybe accent like yeah. every tenth word
1: it's uh very to inconsistent give it,
2: like uh to give his character import in in terms of his working class credentials if we're talking about credentialism here like right. because he has some sort of a southern accent you know he's like a salt of the earth man
1: right it like it validates his uh his blue collar roots yes He never seems sure about the accent he's trying to... No, I wish
2: he would have just like let go of it completely. Yeah,
1: I've got a a pro. Tell me. Uh, It has a commendable position on the cracker cookie nomenclature discourse. Ah, yes. Yeah, I think that Ben Affleck is correct in his assertion that uh, an animal cracker is indeed a cookie rather than a cracker. I think that that is maybe the most pointed part of that entire scene. The rest of it is like we said about all the other romantic moments in this movie, hot garbage.
2: You mean you didn't go for Ben Affleck's uh, Australian accent?
1: He doesn't do a bad one. I
2: think he does a great one. That actually made my pro list. Okay,
1: there you go. <laughs> so the the cookie-cracker nomenclature discourse is a pro. His Australian accent is As a pro. Is his
2: his uh, Australian accent, where he's narrating a, some sort of a parody of a...
1: a nature documentary.
2: National Geographic documentary.
1: Right. My cons list has... Uh, similar to yours, every scene with Billy Bob Thornton in it. <laughs> it's so bad. I just i I don't hold many negative, strong opinions about performers and actors. I think that a lot of people in Hollywood are probably kind of weird um, and a little just you know. Narcissistic. I think it's part of what makes people really good at that job. You're a
2: bigger man than I am because I hated Ben Affleck until five I, minutes ago. Yeah, I, <laughs> I
1: I really like some performers. I don't know if I you know have a lot of contempt for certain other ones. You know, Johnny Depp is one who we've talked about. I don't have a lot of a lot of uh, kind feelings towards it, but I think he does a, a good job for the most part. Billy Bob Thornton is someone who I find completely irredeemable in every capacity. I have never found him to be a good actor. Yep, and everything I have uh, seen of him as a human being, is undeniably just detestable. I, th- I think that he is both a prick and not a good actor. Yeah. Um, and you, you you can be one or the other, but you cannot be both and and get a pass from I'm it. with you.
2: And you certainly can't be both of those things and be some sort of a believable head of NASA.
1: It just buddy. doesn't work. And it, like the idea that this movie at some point probably was as referenced in the Ben Affleck DVD commentary more of a a guy's guy kind of movie about mm-hmm. uh Bruce Willis finding the courage to to do the the deed and 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 a redemption arc for Billy Bob Thornton's character who is disabled he has like a he has a sort of a metal metal cast casing oh, around that's his right leg. and at the end there's that kind of like very human moment where where Bruce rips off his patch and gives it to to Ben Affleck to give to, to Billy Bob Thornton to make sure yeah. that he he knows that he deserved and he earned a patch. To know that that was probably initially a bigger part of the movie mm-hmm. than it than it later became in, in edits and final cuts uh, makes me weirdly reverent and thankful for the, the version of this movie that we did get.
2: Yeah, agree with you. It's, it's so uh, dismissible and hardly noticeable that I forget it's a thing. Yes. I, I don't even think I realized until this most recent watch that he had some sort of an injury
1: There's just that one moment where they're uh, they're in the sort of operations HQ while everyone else is out partying and spending a hundred thousand dollars on strippers yep where he and Bruce have that kind of man to man heart to heart and uh, it doesn't really add anything tangible to the to the film or, or to the experience in any way
2: No again, it's like a really poorly executed shorthand for the thing Deep Impact does much more deftly, which is it is trying to add some emotional heft, some sort of humanity to the story. And it it just completely misses the mark. The last pro I will say for Armageddon is that it gave us the Aerosmith single and the music video with the lovely Alicia Silverstone.
1: Right, I don't want to miss a thing or don't want to miss a thing.
2: And I just remember like being obsessed with that song, also being obsessed with the music video. I've always loved Alicia Silverstone. I was so happy to see her in in this music video. And that's a big pro.
1: Uh, people scoff at that uh, at that song. It's a great tune. I think it's a banger.
2: There is a reason that it topped the charts when it did.
1: I would probably play it somewhere at the beginning or end of this episode if I didn't think that Aerosmith were uh, profoundly litigious people mm. and would come after us. You
2: might be. Yeah.
1: Well... We'll have to speak truth to power at some point and uh, just brazenly defy those laws. And We uh, could hum it. Right. Fair use, baby. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's pretty good. That's not bad. You want to uh, move on to Deep Impact? I wasn't trying, guys. So, <laughs> um, yes, let's move on to Deep Impact. What pros and cons do you have us to start us off with?
1: Yeah, my first pro is... Vanessa Redgrave.
2: Done. That was also mine. Yeah. Incredible. I I wrote Vanessa Redgrave, period, and Vanessa Redgrave's character.
1: I like both of those. Uh cons, I would say a frustratingly truncated and thin second act. I hmm. think where a lot of the more emotional stakes could play out. Lots of montage happening. Yeah. There's, that's true. There's one specifically that's very odd where there's, you know, the very, you know, lifted, cinematic James Horner score and it's the astronauts flying through space and Morgan Freeman sitting ha- at his desk looking contemplative and Elijah Wood and Lily Sobieski getting married mm. all intercut with uh, this like overlay of Vanessa Redgrave's character getting dressed and putting on makeup to like have one last night in her nice jewelry and with a bottle of wine yep. before she uh, ends her life. Yes. And all those things happen at the same time within a course of about four or five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like... Each one of those things deserved a little bit more than just a montage moment.
2: I agree with you. I really wish we had had more of Morgan Freeman as the president of the United States. Not just because I love the idea of Morgan Freeman as the president of the United States, but also because his character specifically is a really interesting and textured one. Despite the fact that he doesn't have a lot of lines um, other than some national addresses. And agree with you that I really wanted more of Vanessa Redgrave's character.
1: The moments they give her are... She she does a great job with them.
2: She's captivating and I absolutely could not stop thinking about her even after she was gone from the story. She looks
1: amazing in this movie she too, looks by the way. She
2: looks gorgeous. Yeah.
1: I don't know how old she is at this point. Probably in her 60s. For um, sure. But she's just stunning in every moment of the movie and, and does a lot with A character that could very easily be dismissible and uh, sort of inert.
2: Vanessa Redgrave's character actually endears me more to T'Leone's character precisely because of how she plays her. Um, Their
1: relationship uh, actually does, I think, what it's supposed to do, which is fleshes out the protagonist in T'Leone in ways that she would not have felt fleshed out if if that character didn't exist and and she does way more with it than uh someone who was not as uh, impactfully brilliant as Redgrave is. Um, she does a lot with that with that character. She
2: definitely does, but she's so low key about it. Yeah. She's very cash.
1: She's effortless and that's part of what makes her so striking and so magnetic is yep. she yeah, looks like she just came from you know, like a, a boozy lunch and is acting circles around the rest of the cast. She really is. Yeah.
2: A pro for Deep Impact for me is uh, how much smarter the creators behind this movie assume the audience to be. You can see that all over the film, but particularly in the way that the dialogue is written. Uh, The dialogue for me is a pro in and of itself. It is written with... Uh, an understanding of what realistic conversations look like and sound like
1: mm-hmm.
2: without the complete abandonment of what dialogue is supposed to do in a cinematic setting.
1: Right. And I mean, this movie is, for large stretches, really nothing but dialogue. And I and, and one of the great things, I think, and, and one of the clever ways that they're able to mask it is that they are putting a lot of exposition into presidential addresses Mm -hmm. and press conferences and then also in newsroom footage. Making Tia Leone's character an anchor on MSNBC is a really decisive and really smart move on their part because it allows us to get a ton of information whilst also moving the plot forward and advancing the characters and their experiences.
2: And when those two worlds collide... When there is a press conference where the president is addressing the nation and doing a fair amount of exposition, and there is also a reporting crowd there to ask questions, presumably ask the questions that we as the audience are asking ourselves, there's even more uh, room for expository dialogue that doesn't feel overly handled or too spoon fed. I don't think that the dialogue in this movie is overly expository at all. I think that it does a really good job of allowing the audience to reach conclusions, to land us in the place and the understanding eventually without doing it just sort of outright in a sentence or two of a thing that someone would not say in real life.
1: The film is not necessarily giving us too much exposition. It's giving us everything we need to know to advance the plot. But it does it in a sense and in a way that is... Really, really adept because it's giving it to us at the same time as the masses or as the people mm-hmm. are receiving it. And it really does uh, evoke the same sensation and feeling of witnessing uh, a press conference or, or or receiving new, very startling, very frightening information. it It to me feels a great deal like the hours following. The September 11th attacks mm-hmm. where we as a nation and really as a world, we're watching our political leaders come on television and explain to us what is happening and trying to make sense of why. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, so much of our current era and the world and, and specifically American events that happen following this film, I don't know, seem, seem to be uh, anticipated by this movie. And, and it's a it, more profound watch now in 2020 than I think it, it was for me in 1998, certainly, but, but anytime I've watched it since.
2: I think you're identifying something really telling there, which is that there is kind of a, an, an uneasiness that you have in watching this movie, not uh, the kind of uneasiness that you would have watching Armageddon because everything is so preposterous and ridiculous, precisely the opposite. Reason, which is that there is something that feels very real and lived in and accurate about the way that the events and the key moments of this movie unfold that makes it unnerving and a little bit disquieting.
1: It's one of my pros on this list for Deep Impact and really just one that is kind of a selling point of the movie in general, which is that it is really, really well-executed speculative science fiction. Yep. And I think that's exactly what it's going for in a sense, while also telling a pretty human, emotionally-driven story. But all of it feels very rooted and grounded in scientific reality and political reality at that, too. Everything feels like it would be uh, executed exactly this way, and that the events that that unfold throughout the duration of the film uh, are being met in a way that feels very real and all the more startling because of how real they feel.
2: I turned to you when we were watching this movie uh, at least a couple of times and just said, oh, it's going there. And and that is the, the conceit of this movie. It goes there. It goes all of there. the places that Michael Bay avoids in terms of tough decisions being made or the kind of failures of efforts that have come together to uh, try and stop this terrible thing from happening, it goes there. It talks about the contingency plans. It talks about the caves in Missouri where like everyone's gonna go, not everyone, a small portion of the population is gonna go live for two years uh, as a backup, right? Like it it goes to all of those places. It goes to those places in a way that feels, I'm gonna keep using this word because it fits thematically that feels very terrestrial. It just feels grounded in events that uh, we have either experienced some version of or that we can imagine ourselves experiencing.
1: One of the cons that I have is that there are some flat and relatively obvious character arcs throughout the film. Everything sort of wraps and concludes in ways that feel like they make sense for this kind of very human, very character-driven sort of drama.
2: I think it counters some of that, like let me tie this up in a nice bow, by uh, making the the casualties, the very literal casualties of this movie, somewhat consequential. Yeah. Not just in terms of the events that take place, but also the people who die. There were several moments when you know they show a few characters, one or two characters, having their last moments who we've come to know in some regard either very well because they're a protagonist or um or they're a secondary character and we see them, you know, just before they meet their end. I was less bothered by the kind of tidiness of a lot of the character arcs resolving themselves in the way that they did yep. because I felt like there were still there was still a mess that was made.
1: Absolutely. There's way more emotional resonance to Taya Leone rectifying her relationship with her father uh, in this movie then in another movie in which a character does the same yep. because that decision and action leads to both of them facing down a 1,000 foot wave that drowns them on a beachfront immediately yes. after they hug.
2: You are sad. You're sad about that. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was crying a lot during this movie.
1: There, it's a really powerful moment. That sequence is is done and handled really well. You know, it, there's there's a lot of work being done to give a lot of resonance to those characters and to the consequences so that when, uh, spoiler, the tiny rock, Beaterman, does finally hit and the waves come crashing inward uh, towards land and, and people drown and buildings collapse and all of these scenes of destruction happen, uh, you feel it. Like there is... A dread that washes over you as you watch it happen. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like an enjoyable popcorn spectacle moment. It, no, it is it, not
2: cartoonish at all. No,
1: it's it's actually you know kind of uh, heartrending and and really defeating in a way. Like it it feels like like watching disaster. It does. Yeah.
2: A con for me of this movie is the very unfortunate opening. Um, and and I remember. <laughs> Seeing this scene play out and thinking, "Oh no, not this!" The unfortunate opening scene with the huge semi truck careening yeah. <laughs> out of control on a two-lane highway when it's just rounded a curve and it, you know, has sort of like the the driver has been distracted and he doesn't see another person coming and then you know kills a person because they explode in the crash.
1: Yeah, the explosion too really. I think pulls the legs out from underneath this moment too, because of just how bombastic and absurd it is. Like it explodes immediately to the point where I found myself on the verge of laughing rather than gasping in shock where it, it and the scene before it, there there are maybe like four too many cuts back and forth between the semi and, yep. and the car as mm-hmm. they're about to collide. I, I kept thinking of that moment in Austin Powers, where they do the same sort of oh, cinematic yep. trickery of like the, the cutting back and forth between him behind like the steamroller and, and the guy in front head. of it. And, yep. and they finally pull out and reveal that he's going impossibly slow, like yep. under, under like a mile per hour. Careful, Austin!
3: No! Watch out!
2: That's fair. That was a con for me. I I think the other thing that's weird about that scene is that I took that to mean, so the person who gets killed in a highly combustible fashion is a scientist who was on his way to ostensibly deliver the news of this discovery of the asteroid or comet, in Mm -hmm. this case, um, careening toward Earth. And so... I left that wreckage thinking, oh God, like-
1: No one's going to know no about this. No one's
2: going to know about this. Yeah,
1: it's, it's uh, completely inconsequential but to it's the plot totally of the But it's totally unnecessary
2: because we find out later in a press conference that Morgan Freeman, as the president says, about a year ago, such and such man was on his way to tell us, uh, you know, told us of the discovery of Wolf Biederman, a comet that had been- So right. it- it didn't matter that he died? The
1: only thing that it really does narratively is gives the opportunity for Elijah Wood's character, Leo Biederman, who is half of the name of the comic because he found it during uh, like an astronomy club uh, outing with their telescopes. It gives him an opportunity to be unaware of the comet's imminent uh, approach. Yes. And so when he hears his name on television with his family... Their life is upended and changed immediately because they realize that he is in fact one of the people who discovered it, who was presumed dead in the car crash that also killed Wolf, Doctor Wolf. Doctor Wolf, right? Uh, but that's it. Like, like beyond that, yeah. You, it, it sort of blindsides you with thinking that you're going to. Uh, They're going to know too late. They're going to learn about this thing too late. And then everyone knows and everyone is competent and has a plan underway by the time we meet the characters.
2: But the thing I love about that, despite the fact that the, the car crash is unnecessary, is that it is more realistic that they would still find out about this that it isn't up to just this one rando dude in a warehouse somewhere to deliver this message that they would still somehow find out that this thing is headed toward us right so that feels that feels real
1: and it's in direct contrast to Armageddon mm-hmm. which posits in its movie that NASA are the only ones who know and that at only by a certain point will the rest of the world realize what's happening, despite the fact that we have already experienced two disasters of rocks falling from the sky and destroying sizable uh, major metropolitan areas. Yep. And somehow nobody knows about this Nobody gives a shit. And nobody can discover it. Uh, Besides this one astronomer who hates his wife and loves sandwiches. Mm -hmm. He's a real fun character.
2: But even NASA doesn't really discover it, right? Because... They don't find it until it's 18 days away. Right. So they've and, been asleep on the job. Right.
1: Presumably no one knows or has the capacity to see this. And and one of the pros for Deep Impact that I did give it is its constant appeals toward scientific accuracy. Yes. Where, you know, even in moments that are certainly probably contrived for the the, uh, the narrative and for the story, it feels real and it all feels very plausible.
2: Okay. And do you have a con?
1: I do have a con. Everyone in this movie is a bad parent,
2: oh. with the exception
1: of Vanessa Redgrave. Everyone in this movie is a bad parent.
2: Oh, say more about that Well,
1: the dad is not a particularly good dad they they uh come around at the end and he makes his amends.
2: They don't really get explicit about why, other than the fact that, you know, I think there's some level of he's like um, a philanderer,
1: I think, and yeah, you know, just just a a really emotionally absent person, and I think that she resents him because he left for her abandoning
2: her mother, yep, yep. yeah.
1: Um, but Richard Schiff plays Elijah Wood's dad in this plays (gasps) Papa Biederman. Mm -hmm. And in the sort of apex of the, the, the the denouement, we'll call it, I guess, he and wife, Mama Biederman, just let Elijah Wood go. The kid's probably like 15. Yeah. And he decides, I'm going to go run after Lily Sobieski and find her and her family. So I'm going to hitchhike my way from Missouri all the way back to Arizona.
2: Is that where they were? It has
1: to be. Like, they say something about it later on, too, that it is, in fact, where they are. Um,
2: oh, shit. That, okay, then that makes that whole sequence on the motorcycle uh, afterward even that much more ridiculous. Well, he
1: hitchhikes in a, in a truck back to Arizona.
2: Right, but then he ends up in the motorcycle back in the cave. Like, back in the entrance to the caves.
1: Not, not when he's picking up the family. They're not anywhere near the caves. They're, oh, they're not? They're just on a highway. They're just like
2: on a highway. They're just on a highway okay. that where
1: everyone is trying to seek higher ground and is caught. That is not the same place as the caves. But he basically hitchhikes across the country from Missouri to Arizona, gets on a bike, and saves Lily Sobieski and her infant sibling mm-hmm. while the parents choose to to die, you know, and and stay with one another. But they're also not particularly great parents either. <laughs> like they, uh, b- all of them seem very beholden to the whims and wishes of the children That's at true. all times.
2: It's very true.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a little nitpick, but it is narratively just like a weird thing where it it feels like the two kids, Elijah Wood and Lily Sobieski's characters, I think I think Leo and Sarah, I think is her name, mm-hmm. seem to have a lot more independence and agency than would. 16 year old kids yeah i think that they could have very easily made them older i agree and and the film would have benefited from it markedly
2: yeah the marriage the like rushed marriage between them Mm -hmm. was strange but like you sort of get it because it's extreme circumstances and
1: and the the marriage is i think meant to be a little bit jarring because of how young they are and and how willing everyone is to go along with it but it is because of the dire circumstances desperate times yeah
2: um yeah that's a that's a pretty good con i hadn't thought about that you know who's a pretty good parent uh i'm basing this off of one or two scenes with her and her daughter is uh er lady i can't think of the actress's name i'm sorry (laughs) uh
1: beth is her name in the beth
2: is her name in the movie she's
1: one of the reporters who is friends with uh, Tia Leone.
2: I think she's her boss, even.
1: Yeah, maybe her superior, liking her particular beat or whatever it is.
2: And she has a, a a really short but lovely scene towards the climax of the movie when she is with her young daughter, who's probably like only three. They were gonna go and leave the station to you know hide out somewhere in like an underground parking lot, but. Uh, we see her just a few seconds later actually in the, like, kids' daycare room at the right. news station. It's
1: a really powerful moment where she decides that they're just going to accept their fate. And because they're not going to be able to escape, at least they'll be in a place where the daughter feels happy. She and, and says, this she is likes. her
2: favorite place. I thought she should be here.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so she's a good parent, maybe. She is
1: a good parent. You're right. Uh, how about for you? What's a con a con?
2: A con for me is that it briefly made me a T. Leone convert.
1: <laughs> okay. And I you don't, don't, like, don't like her. Okay.
3: See, I <laughs> but like I, her okay. I know
2: you do. Uh, I liked her in this movie. I, yeah. I liked her character. I didn't find her acting as grating as I normally do. That's a con for me yeah. of Deep Impact. Compared um, to
1: Ben Affleck's veneers, her nice, uh, you know, big toothiness in this is... Not overly processed, but definitely on display.
2: I love a toothy gal. As what? a toothy gal myself, I, I, I love a toothy gal.
1: I have toothy blonde newscasters in my pros list. Oh,
2: great. Okay. A pro for me is uh, the very brief James Cromwell cameo.
1: I, I have something there, actually. I, I'm going to dig in and then we're going to talk more about that. Because my pro is James Cromwell uh, taking a dig at journalists. <laughs> and yeah. my con is James Cromwell... Literally being a neoliberal shill.
2: Yeah. There's the contrast there between... <laughs> right. He's a politician. Uh, pot kettle black. Like you used to be human and he's like yeah. a member of the cabinet. So. But
1: he's a wonderful <laughs> actor and he's only in the movie for a matter of of minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but plays a very important role. He does. And uh, I think he's just a fantastic actor.
2: Another pro of Deep Impact is, uh, and I mentioned this, Morgan Freeman as president. A related con is that this movie reminds you of how bloodless and completely inept our government has been in the face of a, a real-life global disaster. A pro, another pro for me is competent and internationally collaborative US government. So that's a pro. Uh, the con is that it contrasts very starkly with our our current powers that be, and uh, that sucks. That sucks a little.
1: Yeah, I have I have a take on that. That we'll get into when we dive more into
2: the politics. Yeah,
1: into the analysis of this. One of the things that I, I have as my pro is just the effectiveness of the more human and emotional elements of the film.
2: That was also a pro for me.
1: I think that Mimi leader as a Director is just more equipped to handle that than definitely Michael Bay, but her steady hand is one that I think uh, really plays up those moments. And you're gonna like this because I, I don't know if you know this about Mimi later in her career, but she was one of the principal directors of most of the original run of ER up until like uh, like 2001. Or oh
2: something. well, that explains. Yeah. Beth.
1: Right. So Beth is there, and I mean, beyond that, you just kind of get a sense like, oh yeah, when you when you know that this film is handled very much like the emotionally resonant, very intense moments of that series. Ugh,
3: I love ER yeah, so much. Yeah, it's a great
1: series. She's had a really interesting career. She was the director of the very first. DreamWorks picture Steven Spielberg's company right he reached out to her to direct this film it's called The Peacemaker it has Nicole Kidman and George Clooney
2: I've seen that movie it looks like
1: a pretty run-of-the-mill espionage thriller yes
2: I've seen that movie on television I think I watched it with my dad one time
1: it it doesn't seem like a particularly noteworthy film and I don't think critics thought so either Um, but then she did this film (laughs) she also did pay it forward
3: Oh, in 2000. okay.
1: So here's a fascinating story about Mimi Leader and her career. She directed Pay It Forward in 2000 and did not direct another feature film until 2018. Oh. At the time, she cited the film's lack of success and a lot of misogyny in Hollywood as the reason for why she didn't really have a career after that movie. Hmm. I'm not going to refute or dispute those claims because i think as we have seen over the course of the last 20 years there is rampant sexism misogyny and abuse in hollywood on behalf of a lot of important people absolutely uh but i will say this about pay it forward that movie is so bad that it not only killed mimi leader's career but basically curbed uh helen hunt's career for a decade until she did the sessions she did a little Mm. bit here and there and erased Haley Joel Osment after this, except for a handful of movies until he showed up in, in, you know, adult cameos in like Silicon Valley and and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia.
2: I don't remember hating that movie as much as you're describing, but I saw it in theaters like as a child, right? So uh, not the most discerning of tastes.
1: I mean, fortunately, all these people are making their comeback. And thankfully, the one person whose career wasn't curbed, Kevin Spacey, is out the door at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, not to dismiss accusations of of sexism or misogyny, but that movie was bad enough to do a lot to a lot of people's careers. A lot of
2: collateral damage.
1: So I think that there may be uh, a couple of factors at play. Funny enough, though, the film that Mimi Leder uh, made her her glorious comeback with in 2018 is called On the Basis of Sex. And it is the story of a young Ruth Bader Ginsburg yes! overcoming sexism and misogyny <laughs> in the legal field oh, to become no. a Supreme Court justice. Oh, boy. Uh, so the writing's on the wall there a little bit, I think. A pretty obvious, I think, reason why that film may have... And that, that particular script may have resonated with, with Mimi Leader and and, uh, and her impulses as a filmmaker.
2: Well, I just think she's the tits. She's the tits. I think she did a great job with Deep Impact. She, she is on my pro list. Yeah, on um, my cons list. Yes. Uh,
1: the fact that despite the imminent collapse of human civilization and uh, the end of all things, there's a point made in one of the presidential addresses, that everyone still has to pay their bills on time. And uh, if that isn't, you know, the pinnacle of neoliberal austerity, I don't really know what is. And it's played off like a fun, cheeky moment. And, and you know, definitely given as, I, I think, a moment before things get really dire and urgent where uh, Morgan Freeman says, you know, everything's going to go on as usual before before martial law is implemented in the movie in the back half. right. But uh, I did notice it, and I was like, "I wish that uh, you were willing to maybe turn a blind eye to those bills, given the circumstances." Morgan Freeman.
2: You know, it's funny. This is another uh, testament to to Mimi Leader's deft hand. For as much acute acid reflux that I have for any even you know remote whiffs of capitalist <laughs> impulses, right? Um. I was not bothered by that line because I actually felt Morgan Freeman's, uh, Morgan Freeman as the president, his handling of the crisis to an American populace really reassuring Mm -hmm. and stabilizing, which is exactly what you want from a world leader, right? Um, So I took that sort of part and parcel with the rest of his. Uh, his recommendations for the go-forward plan, which is like, hey, we've got this thing we've been working on. We're going to try X, Y, Z. We feel really good about it. In the meantime, business as usual. I don't want to create a panic. You know, as much as I love the idea of like bills and debt being canceled...
1: Um, it doesn't make sense for the moment. In it fact, doesn't make
2: sense for the moment. They, they and I also think
1: in order to...
2: there is an argument to be made that in this particular circumstance, it would destabilize things too much and create this sort of psychic rift of like an awareness of what's happening that they maybe want to avoid. But yes, that's a good con. <laughs> just, I'm, just I'm doing a lot of the, the mental gymnastics that uh, liberals do about Fucking capitalism. Well, and shit I want to
1: piggyback at some point off of this uh, concept that you've that you've you've touched upon about the competency and assuredness of the administration in the face of disaster. And I want to get through our, our pros and cons first, but it is a part that I want to interrogate because I want to hear your take on that as a whole and how you feel it feels framed in a 2020 context.
2: Yes, let's talk about it. Another pro for me. Robert Duvall. I mean, I just love the guy. Yeah. And he plays a character who you're like, of course, it's Robert Duvall. Like, he's like doing a thing that you've seen him do. But it's so comforting. It still has its place in the movie. And one of my all-time favorite moments of his character, you know, he plays this OG, uh, original, like, moonwalker from back in the heyday of NASA, you yeah. know, in the in the late '60s,
1: and he's working with a crew of uh, very young, new blood in the NASA space program. None of them have ever even been into space or or, or, or
2: landed a thing somewhere out into the universe. Right. They
1: make a, a point of saying that everything that they've done is uh purely theoretical and all in simulation and never in the in the real thing like he has. And he's piloted seven missions to the moon.
2: And so they pit his character and the younger crew against one another, you know, in a way that that feels believable.
1: Um they they communicate their reverence and respect for him, but also point out to him blatantly that they feel that his presence is a PR stunt to make sure people feel good and assured about the mission.
2: I loved that critique. Mm -hmm. I loved that it went there, as I will continue to say about this movie. I love that it went there because the easy sideline for this is, oh, we don't like you because you're old school.
1: Right. Blamed ageism. They made an entire movie about this. It's called Space Cowboys.
2: (laughs) Sorry, I never yeah, saw that.
1: It's, it's uh it's not great, but but this movie yes has I think more dimensions to it than simply these younger youngins are uh, ageist and don't like the old. Guy.
2: When they leveled that critique at him, I was like, I'm here for that. I am with you. I could see that that is a perspective that those people would have, while still being able to hold respect for this man. In any case, his character is you know this sort of folksy old, just like. He's the right stuff through and through.
1: Spurgeon Tanner.
2: Spurgeon Tanner.
1: Fish, they Fish. call him.
2: There's a beautiful moment at the end, towards the end of the movie, between him and one of the younger crew members. They're out in space. This particular crew member has been injured really terribly. Um, and he's been convalescing for, you know, the time that they've been traveling yeah. back to Earth.
1: He's blinded by... by he's blinded mission. by
2: the sun, quite literally. Robert Duvall's character comes over to him because he sort of s- hears him moaning uh, in in pain and comes down to him and he just starts up a conversation with him and he does the thing that Robert Duvall is so good at doing, which is mm-hmm. give his characters a sense of empathy and groundedness and wisdom without saying or doing a whole lot. There's yeah. not a lot of gymnastics uh, about it. He's, and a, he's
1: a warm cup of coffee.
2: Um, this is this exchange between Robert Duvall's character and this injured crew member is one of those moments that felt at once cinematic, but also extremely human. Um, and really, I mean, I teared up, but I was tearing up a lot during this movie. There are a lot
1: of moments. Well, it's a really lovely moment too, where he gets to kind of lean into his uh, old foginess and, and says, you know, none of these other brats have ever read twain or melville and so while he's laying on this bed blinded Duval pulls out like a a dog-eared kind of yellowed copy of moby dick mm-hmm. and starts reading from chapter one and and the guy kind of laughs but then also just sort of settles in and is gently comforted by robert Duval reading moby dick which who wouldn't be
2: <laughs> if i could fall asleep to robert Duval reading me moby dick or any story every single night i'd uh, sleep like a baby
1: I want to segue now to a little bit deeper analysis of both of the films, Uh, starting specifically with Deep Impact. A lot of criticism leveled at this movie at the time was that it adheres to a very strict disaster movie formula. Roger Ebert, I think, very specifically cites this. And I think that neither of us necessarily agrees with that point.
2: So he he makes a very explicit comment about the fact that the Disaster movie formula that Deep Impact employs is this um, very familiar arc that we see of characters with personal circumstances and personality traits being introduced to act as a kind of punctuation and weight giving element to the action and the consequences and the disaster itself.
1: Right, that the characters almost sort of play second fiddle to what we actually come for, which is the scenes of destruction and the mayhem and the special effects.
2: And that it gives the, you know, the movie some dynamism to cut intercut between these two things, right? And while I think that is true to a certain extent about this movie, I would argue that Mimi leader uses the formula in some ways that are beholden to that formula, but also in in a lot of ways that are not formulaic. And evidence of the latter is in the the emotional stakes themselves, in the, you know, we keep talking about this, this humanity that feels very terrestrial, that feels very grounded and realistically rendered in the movie. We have those moments because Mimi Leader is using that formula of introducing us to archetypal characters um, so that the events are personalized.
1: Well, and I feel like all movies do that. Yes. You, I mean, it, it is not really, I think, a, a consequential element of a disaster movie formula to show us characters who start in a very archetypal place who transition and grow. But I think that it's interesting that so often that gets leveled specifically at disaster movies because those characters actually don't have that dynamicism.
2: Well, and I think because the the introduction of those characters stands in such stark contrast to the events that escalate in the movie versus, you know, a more like, say, familial drama, where the introduction of characters and their personal stories and the archetypes that they fit into contrast less with, like, an apocalyptic storm. We have these moments, yes, but I would argue that these elements of humanity that are rendered so expressively and so realistically, they at once do the work of giving the events concrete human specific consequences the thing that he bemoans about the formula which i think is actually a benefit of that formula it's a
1: definitive strength of this movie as opposed to armageddon which takes those hyper formulated characters and does absolutely nothing with them the contrast there is almost more stark because of how completely narratively and totally maladroit those elements are in comparison to the bombast. They
2: feel completely stranded and totally out of place and not at all uh, in concert with the rest of the film. Whereas in this movie, uh, the opposite is true. So they do that work of imbuing those events with human specificity, um, making the consequences Personal, so that we can attach ourselves to them, right? But at the same time, they do this other really interesting thing, which is that they manage to dissipate the intense scrutiny and the weight we place on the minutiae of our day to day experience, on these like highly reactive annoyances and tediums and, Mm -hmm. you know, personal narratives we tell ourselves about our everyday lives, in employing the formula the way that she does, she renders the smallness of our personal problems, of our human problems, completely inconsequential and holds up a mirror to how small they are. And I found so many moments of tension where there would be tension and then a release because I would feel this wash of, oh yeah, of course she's doing that thing. She knows that thing doesn't matter anymore. One of the notes I wrote down when we were watching this, um, I wrote down that this movie doesn't linger on anything too much. It doesn't linger on the devolution of society as people start to reckon with their their own ending it doesn't linger on uncomfortable or potentially corny conversations it doesn't linger on those things in such a way that renders those exchanges and emotions and experiences more realistic because we're sort of experiencing them and observing them the way that they would happen in real life, not in the way that a movie wants to utilize them with, with a certain amount of you know utility and functionality being put forth before the veracity of the thing that it's communicating. Right. That's a shit ton of words to say that I actually feel like Mimi Leader employs the formula in such a way that not only exploits the benefits available in the formula, but also turns the formula on its head in a lot of ways. And for me, one of the most beautiful things about this movie is the central kernel in that uh, tension that I'm describing, which is that it just reminded me so effortlessly of how inconsequential so many of these Small, personal, again, very terrestrial things that we feel or say or do, or, you know, dramas that we have in our, our personal histories. It just reminded me of how small and meaningless those things are. And at once reminded me of how important those things are, how important those connections are, particularly when hope is lost. And you are, you are searching for a connection to, uh, to find comfort in. And that is an expert move, no matter how you slice
1: it. Yeah, it's a great movie. I, I, it's a way better movie than I remember it being, Deep Impact is. Armageddon is a way worse movie than I remember it, it being.
2: Watching this movie made me hate Armageddon more. <laughs> because I was like, this movie is so much better than it needs to be. Yeah.
1: For better or worse, the two uh, are inescapably linked when we have a conversation about either of them and deep impact will come out on top almost every time that being said I do have a, a a way in to examine as I said sort of the internal politics of both of the movies that I think are more explicit than either of the filmmakers maybe believes that they are mm-hmm. um, or that a, a, a very superficial reading of the film might lend mm-hmm. so michael bay has always been just sort of like a a very closeted conservative filmmaker uh jerry bruckheimer the producer of armageddon is uh, a very vocal conservative in hollywood like he donates a ton of money to the republican party and to a lot of candidates there but michael bay doesn't have any sort of F- uh fec filings or Mm -hmm. or donations listed at all he's never been explicit about his politics he's never mentioned it and claims that he has never once explicitly outright stated his politics in his films or uh in any sort of interviews Mm -hmm. that being said like i this film specifically is almost jarringly conservative you know just just take a look at his films for a moment and see what he does like there is a fetishization of the military there is a distinct and profound uh sort of animosity and hostility towards bureaucracy we see it in the way that the government fumbles everything in all of his movies whether it's armageddon or the rock or even like the transformers movies he even made like the movie about benghazi Mm -hmm. right and made this movie that is such like a a sort of sweaty, you know, masculine wet dream for the right. Like, it was it was screened in front of right-wingers with uh, Chris Kyle's wife, you know, um, um, America, the American sniper guy. Yep. Uh, you know, like, like, these are people who are celebrating uh, American exceptionalism and empire and their capacity. And the movie has that written all over it.
2: There's a very explicit line that I literally shrieked at when it was delivered by Keith David's character. And it was something about the amount of spending uh, that America that America has for yeah. military defense. And it
1: was like a modest number too. It was it was only like a few hundred billion dollars, which at this point is uh, is dwarfed by by what we're spending post war on terror. Absolutely, I
2: shrieked, and immediately after the shriek, noted that. Today, that would never be discussed in a film, no matter what the film's politics. That would never fly.
1: Well, not least of which because of the uh, intelligence community and the military's involvement in Hollywood and the way that they are often given sort of carte blanche and and final say on what makes it into a movie and what doesn't. Uh, Michael Bay is a major offender of this. He has a ton of military technology and a lot of real military personnel and bases and, and hangars and things in his film. So his work is certainly indebted to the military and consistently portrays the military explicitly in a very, very positive light. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this movie too is also just sort of the, I already said a fetishistic fantasy of working class white people like who are by and large conservatives and Republican voters. It is this idea of credentialism meaning nothing. It is sort of a, a middle finger to the idea of the like professional class, like the wonkishness of people in like suits and, and white collars and ties. The
2: intellectual elites. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. And and it is the perfect exemplification of those feelings of, you know, white collar professionals and, and the elite class you know, having a ton of opinions about how to do jobs and what America should look like, but having actually no idea how to fundamentally execute things.
2: The conceit of this film that NASA is nothing but a bunch of idiots is so telling and so preposterous, but really speaks to this argument you're making, which is that he, he does have this extremely conservative viewpoint for a fair amount of disdain for... For the intellectual class that are the big nerds that can't actually do things.
1: Yeah. And beyond that, too, it's not just that they are uh, completely ineffectual, but that the people necessary to do the job right are the like blue-collar, salt-of-the-earth folks. And they have to step in and educate and... Take on the job and they can learn your job, but you can't do theirs right. And- not
2: only are they necessary, but they are the ones that have to make sacrifices. Bruce Willis's character is a literal martyr and sacrifices himself for the greater good of uh the planet's survival, which is a perfect proxy for the thing that we imbue military acts with. Right. Which or, is this or idea police acts or, or police anything acts, else. Like which they- is
1: We love this idea of martyrdom on behalf of our quote unquote heroes, you know, or or, 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 our uniformed boys and whatever. And that's
2: not to say that those people don't make sacrifices. That is not to say that those people don't have to have a certain amount of of bravery that someone on civilian soil, living a a civilian life, doesn't have to make. But it is pulled to an extreme point and really, really... Fetishized to your to use your words in yeah. Armageddon.
1: There are a couple of other you know points at which I think this movie really shows its hand as deeply embedded and entrenched in conservative ideology. If there is any active antagonist outside of the asteroid, which is really just a rock, right? Like it is, it is an, ine- an inevitable force that we have to stop. It is the goal, but it isn't really actively pursuing or attempting to curtail the work and efforts of the protagonist. It's government bureaucracy. It is the people in charge getting in the way of these guys who know what they're doing and who are experienced and who can get the job done and deciding to pull the plug on it and do something else.
2: You're also making me realize that the casting of Billy Bob Thornton was not accidental, that he is the only person who could play the head of NASA the way that Michael Bay wants the head of NASA to be played, which is a working class sympathizer to a certain extent, right? A a person who actually does not get in the way of these um, salt of the earth dudes doing their job, but instead advocates for them and enables their work to happen, but he can only do that because he's Billy Bob. Right. right? And, and
1: he's an outlier within the actual community. He's a total of, outlier. Of thinkers in, in NASA, you know, who dismisses their ideas as overly theoretical and they need like real, actual, actionable steps that they can take to, to defeat the asteroid. And of course, he has a nice, thick southern accent. I was going to
2: say, he speaks their language quite literally. He sounds like them, he talks like them, he's an ally from the get-go, without it being explicit.
1: There is also American flags draped oh my in God. all sorts of places. It's so gross. Um, and they also invoke God on a number of occasions that are really jarring in ways that aren't just, you know, like, God help us or oh my God, but, you know, like, actually Bruce Willis and other people in, in NASA or otherwise praying in the middle of the movie. Like, there's a moment where uh, one of the ships is is grounded and... and you know crashes when they're approaching the asteroid and Bruce Willis says something while he's comforting and consoling the rest of his crew like let's just let's just take a minute to ask God to to protect our friends and it happens and there's like a moment where he individually and specifically like looks up and and asks God for help and
2: I made a note when we were watching this movie that the word God was tacked on to way too many sentences all
1: kinds of things
2: just like randomly just added at the end as a punctuation point agree with you that it's it's the interweaving of faith in this movie is really jarring and something that i don't think i really noticed when i was younger of
1: course not and i didn't either and and granted i grew up in a pretty religious household so those things didn't strike me as odd yep watching it now it uh It's very blatant that it's it's intended for a very specific kind of audience watching this film in 1998.
2: And it's contrasted so, so starkly with the way in which God or some sort of religious faith is referenced or utilized in Deep Impact. Right. There's really only one material moment when religious faith is brought up.
1: And it's when Morgan Freeman says, I believe in God, you may not, but I would like to offer a prayer for us. It feels very real because of how politically conceived it is and how it is encompassing and and comforting for all while also being respectful of, of conflicting beliefs. There's
2: an acknowledgement of pluralism to a certain extent, mm. but it also um, feels real in the way that we hear Presidents so often invoke the name of God at national addresses or important speeches or at the end of a State of the Union, they'll say, and God bless America, mm-hmm. whatever. But it was, it was done in a way in that movie that felt right for the character and right for the moment that it was being delivered in. And right
1: for the kind of movie that we were And
2: in. right for the kind of movie.
1: Whereas in Armageddon, yes, the president there also invokes the name of God at a certain point. One of the other things that he does is uh, completely vindicates and legitimizes American nuclear capacity. There is a moment when because they are taking nuclear weapons to blow up the rock, he literally says that our wars have given us the necessary technology and response and purpose with which to defeat or, or to overcome the current situation.
2: I, that was another moment of shrieking for me. So it was, ga-
1: was gasp-inducing. In
2: in Deep Impact, I was doing a lot of crying. In Armageddon, I did a lot of screaming uh, because of these really ridiculous, completely transparent moments of propaganda. And that was one where I was like, did he just say what I think he said? Yeah.
1: And the entire thing looks like a, like a beer commercial too, where it's just like, good old boys and like working class America and like flags waving and and people in like bars and and you know out in the fields and it's very just classically uh like right-wing conservative like American exceptionalism and it is it is a very obvious thing when you're looking for it
2: even when you're not looking for it it's obvious once you understand the cliff notes of these of this rhetoric, it's very easy to spot. The other evidence of American exceptionalism that I'm sure you're going to talk about is how America-centric this movie is, yes. which is not unusual for American films. No. It is a thing that American films, particularly ones where things happen on a global scale, like Independence Day. I was
1: going to just reference Independence Day and say a similar disaster film is equally American-centric. And where it's like America and everyone against else. space, yeah. Right. Well, and everyone else is uh, sort of has a a fealty and defers to. American thought and philosophy and to planning.
2: That we're the de facto world leader and we therefore have all the right answers. Right. And no one else does.
1: The only character in the movie who is not an American in a world-threatening situation is Peter Stormar's uh, Russian cosmo character. Who's, I should a, who's say a highlight of the film? He is
2: a major pro of that movie. Yeah. I, I just ate him up. He
1: is absolutely wonderful.
2: Upon this watch, I appreciated him... In ways that I never have in in previous viewings of this movie. I was so happy anytime he was on screen. I was I, like, <laughs> okay, he is at least matching the hilarity and ridiculousness of this movie with this character, right, with and a character
1: of equal pomp and uh, and ridiculousness, and
2: just his line delivery, he's is an excellent perfect.
1: character actor. And yeah, he, he uh, yeah, he's just uh, someone who will come up, I'm sure, again and again when we talk about '90s movies. But the the sort of American focused uh, exceptionalist read of this, I think, is a good segue into my political read of Deep Impact, mm-hmm. where, as we've already mentioned, that movie is one that is much more about a sort of international diplomacy and a collective experience on the world stage and and, and governmentally, intergovernmentally.
2: Yeah, a lot of collaborative effort happening.
1: So, you know, I, I said Michael Bay's movie is deeply conservative. And I don't think I would say this is the polar opposite. But what this film is, is I think a, a deeply liberal movies specifically a a deeply neoliberal movie Mm -hmm. and if we talk about it in the context of 1998 at you know the the closing of a second bill clinton term and we talk about a lot of the sort of austerity politics and we talk about like the mass globalization uh, on behalf of of american enterprise this movie starts to make a lot more sense and has a really interesting read so one of the other things that we've talked about, and we have to give a shout out to Megan Day for, for broaching this before we did in her piece about You've Got Mail, which we talked with her about, is this sort of defeatism that is masked as transcendence, as transcendence and forward thinking. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is so noteworthy about this film that we both remarked on is just how comforted we felt by the notion of competent leadership at the helm. The thing that I I realized as we were watching the movie, though, is that the competent leadership didn't change the outcome of the film, Mm -hmm. which is millions of people died. And without the exceptionalism and actions of a brave few would have been complete collapse of humanity. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is speculative science fiction. There is an argument to be made that if this movie had gone completely right and everyone had been super competent, it... Uh, deflates the picture and it and it takes all the stakes out of the movie Mm -hmm. but what it sort of inadvertently does in the process of that as well is shows that even competent leadership under this sort of guise of neoliberalism is not any more equipped to save us from the looming threat of of defeat and the end of our way of life
2: I know exactly where you're going with this, especially as we think about the read of Joe Biden as the uh,
1: the, the sort of mourner in chief. The, he's, the mourner in right, chief. He's a eulogizer. He's a eulogizer. Yes. And yeah, I mean that is a great way of thinking of it. Now, you know, a lot of people at the time that this movie was released made a connection between Morgan Freeman and Jesse Jackson, mm-hmm. and having that sort of like oratorial skill and and sort of preternatural capacity for that sort of uh, strong leadership in, in the way that he communicates and addresses the nation.
2: And a paternal quality a that's paternal necessary quality. in those positions. And,
1: you know, race aside, I think that there is also a strong invocation of Barack Obama in the way that this character is portrayed. Granted, he's not anywhere on the political stage at the point that this movie's released, but the parallels, you know, even absent... Uh, the distinction that they are both black men is there, that that Obama had that very sort of paternal instinct, that very sort of casual uh, capacity for, for making people feel comforted and safe. And in a lot of ways, giving us that go ahead to say things are going to happen business as usual. Everything is OK, even in the wake of really devastating social collapse you know
2: and he was so good at his comforting and so good at his air of competency that he did the job that was uh, required of him by a government that does not want to agitate a an ailing populace which is distract you from the fact that we're not actually going to do anything to bail you out we are going to save all of these banks but I'm here. I'm comforting you. I am a presence that, that is stalwart and stabilizing. And that, in and of itself, is what we're offering you.
1: Exactly. That's about it. In you know the context of this film, we are given brief indicators of societal unrest. We are given indicators of looting and of violence. We see protesters outside of the Missouri caves, where the eight hundred thousand people are going to go and live for two years, and who were selected by random lottery, right? I guess it's I guess it's a million people in total. It's eight hundred thousand civilians and two hundred thousand people pre-selected. But there is such a inherent uh, violence to the decision-making and and the really sort of sacrificial quality of the decision to let essentially three hundred and twenty million other people die. It's handled with such a competence, with such a, with an ease and with such like a, a, a necessary devotion to duty that you almost forget about it for a moment in favor of the human interest stories, which is kind of the wool that gets pulled over our eyes in this in this neoliberal sense uh, even today.
2: I'm reminded of a point that Megan Day made about Joe Fox, Tom Hanks' character in You've Got Mail. She argues that the disturbing thing about his portrayal is that this kind of mechanical onward push, this inexorable march, to use her words, of his capitalist drive is actually a really candid, honest, dutiful thing. You're making me realize that that is very similar to the portrayal of the government in this in this movie, and of the decisions being made, that uh, they are devastating, they have real uh, material impacts, the same way that uh, Joe Fox's decisions did, right? He he puts his love interest out of business, ruins her livelihood, and in this movie the stakes are much higher, but, but that it is this idea that it's a, this mechanical approach to governing is the moral higher ground, despite the fact that a lot of morally problematic decisions are being made.
1: Well, and in the context of Mini leader, you know, evoking this particular catastrophe in this way, you kind of have to question what it says about our perspective about the capacity of our leaders. And in that sense, I think that it sort of functions as this kind of liberal apologia where it sort of says, oh, we can't really fault our our leaders for failing to adequately address this and to save the most of us because it's a thing that's outside of their hands. Mm -hmm. And when you pull it back into, you know, contextualizing it in 1998, it falls really, it fits pretty perfectly into this larger narrative we have of that being the prevailing thought and ideology that, we are at the end of history, that our leaders aren't really there to do anything anymore, that they're not there to make our lives better, that they're not there to liberate us from the fetters of our existence and to, uh, you know, make life more meaningful or more uh, abundant or, or safer for anybody. They're just there. And they're there to offer a sort of warm blanket. They're there to offer a feeling of competence,
2: a feeling of comfort and stability even when the world is literally ending and, and if, things are anything but comfortable or stable.
1: And if we just pull it back to 2020 now as we conclude this one. Oh, let's. Because it's a long one. It is the same sentiment that is right on the tips of the tongues of so many Democrats and liberal leaning people right now at the advent of a Joe Biden administration. Mm-hmm. We have been experiencing, yes, complete incompetence manifested in Donald Trump himself, his uh, complete inability to make any sort of decisions to generate a plan and to hire the right people to do the job. But now we're also faced with you know, an incoming Biden administration that's slowly naming its cabinet of people who are everywhere you look, being deigned the most capable, the most experienced the most qualified. And they are those things. They have years of experience. They have credentials. They have been working alongside other people in Washington and different operatives in the Democratic Party for a long time. But what they aren't is anybody who has any sort of definitive and progressive idea about where to take this country after it's faced one of the most catastrophic downturns economically, societally, what have you, In our generation.
2: They are top to bottom, soup to nuts, inside and out. People who are being hired to maintain the status quo. And as our very short memories may not allow us to recall, the status quo is the thing that brought us Donald Trump. Absolutely. He is not an aberration. He is a very concrete and necessary evolution of a system that created him.
1: Right. He is the result of the unbalanced equation. <laughs> he is the direct opposite to the system trying to write itself without offering a substantial resolution. Yep. Right. He Way is, to
2: throw in a Matrix reference you're there. You're
1: welcome, everybody. <laughs> that was but, good. But he is the anomaly. Mm-hmm. And he is, well, I, I should say he is anomalous, but he is not an unexpected aberration or anomaly given the trajectory of the country. He
2: is part of the equation and I and I think the you know to bring it back to this idea of Joe Biden as a eulogizer as a sort of warm blanket after we've been faced with, you know, um anything but a warm blanket for the last 4 years, that warm blanketness is being conceived of, and in many cases, offered explicitly as a proxy to actual governing, to actual change, um, when really all it is is just comfort. It's
1: It's exactly that.
2: It's not things changing in any substantive or material
1: way. Yeah, I would go even further and say that it is actually being weaponized. It is actually very cynically being invoked in order to make us feel a sense of security because we have competent, qualified, credentialed people at the reins who are not willing to and have no desire to change the actual course of history and of our collective experience to make life profoundly better for anybody.
2: You're right. It is the it is the Morgan Freeman president read because it's the exact thing that he does. He offers a stabilizing eulogy, an assertive and assured bedtime goodnight speech.
1: Yeah, it's literally Robert Duvall reading us Moby Dick.
2: So that we will continue to pay our bills. So that we will not rise up and revolt in the face of our our complete undoing.
1: And so that we won't question the apparent and obvious inequities that are in our society and the way in which all that social fabric that's only held together by our adherence to it and our belief in it is starting to completely tear apart fundamentally.
2: Yeah, you've shifted my my perspective about the politics of this movie. I was sort of reading the competency of Morgan Freeman's character as um, kind of a knife turn of just like how absent that we are currently. But as we think ahead to the president who will, who will soon be inaugurated, um, that is precisely the same man in, in many respects. Well,
1: I think it's evidence to how, uh, how potent a drug that can be. Yeah. The fact that it is working on a lot of people, and uh, yeah, even even people in the progressive wing of the party, and and people who consider themselves part of the left, like those people are, in my perspective, coming up pretty short when it comes to really challenging the status quo and really challenging the decisions being made before inauguration.
2: I would argue that Morgan Freeman is a, a bit more sentient and coherent yeah <laughs> than president-elect joe biden <laughs>
1: yeah he he has i think maybe a a slightly more uh firm grip on his faculties there
2: aren't any like come on mans
1: no none in of his those. speeches none of those challenging journalists who ask him the hard-hitting questions no. anything like that he's definitely more of a of a straight arrow there but I, I think that the proxies here and 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 sort of the cogent analysis of this thing as a film that very much evokes the leadership that is uh, is forthcoming and still completely incapable of stopping what's coming
2: and and the the failures of that type of apoliticism, the this idea that we can transcend politics by instead looking to, forces and explanations that are comforting instead of uh, actual legislation. Right.
1: In Deep Impact, it is sort of the fortitude of human spirit and perseverance. In our current uh, discourse, it is unity. Mm -hmm. They're the same kind of thing. Yeah. It's, It's evoking the same sort of sentimental feelings to distract us in the case of Deep Impact maybe and... Cynically, actually, sort of blind us in the current moment in in our real world to the realities of of the circumstances in the situation to make us feel just a little bit better as we venture into the beyond and the unknown,
2: and to keep us apolitical as we do it.
1: I think that's a pretty good place to close everything. Uh, as always, you can follow us, Hit Factory Pod, on Twitter. Uh, if you're listening to this, you are already a patron. Congratulations! But uh, if you're not already, please subscribe. We are at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. And uh, thank you so much to our capitalist overlords, Linda and Kevin. Shout out. Shout out. We will keep bringing you more of these through quarantine and beyond. Thanks, everyone.
2: Making whole.
3: I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up to say goodbye. But the dawn is breaking, it's early morn. The taxi's waiting, he's blowing his horn. Already I'm so lonesome I